maybe we need a uh, bunch of people to come out to the parts board and chant lock them up. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording today on May 25th, 2017, and this is episode 36. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. It's the final countdown. We finally know the results of the British Columbia 2017 election, or at least the first one, if that's how many we have. And it turns out they're more or less the results we thought we knew about the British Columbia election, because nothing's actually changed. Yeah, I heard this week described on Twitter as sort of overtime shootout, but in cricket. So just like dragged over a few days. Basically, what happened is at 10, 12, 2, and 5, and I know this because... I was one of those people on Twitter doing this, just hitting refresh on Elections BC's website. And those were the times it released the results of the absentee ballots it had counted. And the recounts. And the couple recounts. Those were released pretty quickly. But it was so frustrating because I think Elections BC wanted to kind of fuck with the province because they didn't release the most important results until the very end. I guess they wanted to either draw out the suspense or really get their shit right. So we didn't know... Courtney Comox until almost 5 p.m. on Wednesday evening. But in the end, the NDP still managed to win Courtney Comox by 189 votes. So it's not as close as it was. It was nine votes. There was a period in there where the Liberals were leading by three votes, in which case voting became exceptionally important for those who did. But now it's 189. Interestingly, though, Richmond Queensboro, who a few people had been looking at, and NDP had actually initially filed for a recount, but it wasn't approved. That one came down to 130 votes. The Liberals managed to hold it, but that sort of gap kept closing. It closed in a few other ridings, but nowhere else sort of came as close. And so the NDP is now looking at filing for a recount again in that riding, saying there was some weird stuff going on because the way the district got redrawn this Richmond riding sort of grew into uh, New Westminster, the Queensborough district. And so people who were filing their absentee ballots got a bit confused because they're like, why am I not voting in New Westminster? I live in New Westminster. Why am I voting in this in Richmond riding? And some of them were counted initially, but then got discarded later. So it maybe there's a case. I'll link to the New Westminster record story about this, but maybe it'll just end up being nothing and 130 votes will stand for the Liberals. But that gives us an overall seat distribution of 43 Liberals, 41 New Democrats, and three Greens still. I think the biggest sort of story of this, though, was how the NDP went from having a couple point percentage gap with the Liberals to 1,566 votes differentiating them in the popular vote. And that's out of almost 2 million votes cast. This is a tie. It's eight one hundredths of a percent difference. Our system doesn't rely on the popular vote, but some of the initial rhetoric out of Christy Clark was, oh, we won the popular vote, we won the most seats, we have this moral authority to govern. But now that argument's kind of gone because she basically got the same number of votes minus like a few people who were sick or not sick that day and didn't get around to voting. Yeah, that's uh, very close in the grand scheme of things. 
though she still has that little bit of an edge, and it's enough to kind of still claim the mandate, even though it's a very narrow mandate on it. The symbolic win of having the popular vote, having the lead in the popular vote does help. But more importantly is the seats, because that's what ultimately decides. And so Clark this week came out as soon as the official results were announced and saying, with 43 BC Liberal candidates elected as MLAs and a plurality in the legislature, meaning the most seats, we have a responsibility to move forward and form a government. So she's already positioned herself to say, I'm just going to do it. She's obviously talking to the Greens and trying to figure out what it takes to win their support on a throne speech and potentially on a budget. But it seems like she really wants to go down this Stephen Harper minority play it vote by vote strategy. Yeah, that's really probably the smart move for her if she can't actually bring the Greens on board for a full coalition, which I just can't see them actually doing. Uh, it's to you know play that vote for voting, and then even if she can get six months out before the uh, losing her confidence motion, at that point it's much more likely the lieutenant governor is going to opt for a new election rather than going to John Horgan to be premier. And at that point, you can try her luck again on the campaign, you know, maybe working with the other parties a little more as the situation would necessitate, kind of soften some of the edges of Christy Clark and let, and, you know, maybe positions her a little better to go forward, although ideally she'd probably want to pull it out longer than six months, but it does seem to be the obvious and smart play for the Liberals to make. Yeah, Andrew Weaver, for his part, is talking about wanting a sort of longer, more stable government. He wants to form a partnership that he says, you know, British Columbians don't want to go back to the polls anytime soon. So he said to both parties, he's willing to negotiate the long term. There's nothing magical about two years. There's nothing magical about three years. And frankly, there's nothing stopping us from looking for four years. I mean, technically, he could say five because we're in a Westminster system and we could just throw out the fixed election date law. But I think he would go to four at max because that's just getting too too it, into the weeds. It's not his main demand on the electoral yeah, system. No, no one really. The only like complaint about our fixed election date law is that it's in May rather than the fall when most other big elections are. But... That's not a red line for anyone that I've heard. So Weaver wants a sort of long term. What was interesting was today, John Horgan was out saying he's optimistic he'll be able to put forward a framework that has the majority support in the legislature. He qualifies that saying he doesn't have that today. But this is sort of the first sign I've seen from him that negotiations are actually moving along beyond the sort of, well, we've talked in like very large scare quotes to, I think we can do this. Yeah, and that definitely seems to be where they sh they're heading. And said in past episodes that you know if John Horton can't come up with the more attractive offer, like he, he is failing badly in that case because everything should be leaning towards the green side and with the NDP, and then it just becomes a question of is there any sticking point there that's really going to derail that uh, train. Well, and in terms of sticking points, they're all much closer on most of the policy issues. As we talked about the platforms before the election, they're in wide agreement on major issues. They might differ on specifics or on, you know, dollar amounts. But, you know, in terms of raising the carbon tax, in terms of working towards electoral reform and these other issues, they both want to see most of the same things. 
But of course, the problem is Clark gets the first shot, and it's a question of if Horgan can't make that deal and is just sort of put some offers out there, will Weaver go? I don't want to risk bringing down Christy Clark to not get anything with John Horgan, and then we just all have to go to a poll because that's sort of the worst case scenario for the Greens, I think, because I don't think they have the money to fight in another election. And they'd probably be blamed for causing another election if they can't get along with either party. Yeah, and actually that brings up a potential strategy that uh, Clark could be using, which is when the Raiders returned on May 31st to the Lieutenant Governor, that she basically recalls the legislature almost immediately and really kind of pushes for a throne speech as quickly as possible to limit the chance that uh, Weaver and Horgan can work out an arrangement and kind of put the pressure on Weaver quickly to give a nod, at least temporarily, to the Liberals so they can kind of keep going and nothing gets upset while there's still issues being sorted out between the uh, Greens and the NDP. Yeah, I think she'd either have to do it very soon or kind of wait until the fall and hopefully win the support over that time, or maybe during that time, uh, Horgan and Weaver come to a deal, but then Horgan's too angry, or she managed to, like, set him off on something, and that breaks it apart. But Wait until the fall, though. It's a difficult move, and I think risks a fair bit of blowback in that, you know, it looks like she's playing games and spending five, six months between the election and actually reconvening the legislature you know it looks cowardly for lack of a better word i agree i expect we will see her try to bring back the legislature in june at some point even if for just a couple weeks even if just to try to get a budget on the table because eventually we will need some kind of spending bill passed we're not quite like the u.s where everything will shut down but that could happen i think in about late september when the sort of approved money runs out for departments, which gives Christy Clark some time, but there's still a desire to test the legislature. And like you say, she'll lose the authority, the public authority almost, to govern if she waits and sits on it. So the question, I guess, becomes about what are these red lines and who's willing to budge on them? And I think the most interesting one that everyone's sort of paying attention to right now is this electoral reform question, because we know both the NDP and Greens had electoral reform in their platform, but where what it came down to was the NDP saying, we'll put it to a referendum and we will campaign for yes. Whereas the Greens said, we're going to do it. And they didn't really say anything about referendum. And since then, they've sort of like walked away and said, well, let's just do it. Now that we have the chance to get through electoral reform, let's run it through the legislative process. They can say a majority of MPs representing 60% of British Columbians voted for parties that support electoral reform. So why not just put through a bill? Well, mostly because they aren't MPs in the legislature. MLA, a majority of MLAs. <laughs> I think the big thing, and you know, this was raised back when it looked like we might actually have to ask this question at the federal level, was you know, there's still the kind of legitimacy issue of the politicians deciding the terms on which they're held accountable and it's it's a hard move to kind of just go with the you know we've got the votes in legislature we'll just do it and you know let the politicians 
choose the voters rather than the other way around to maybe put a slightly unfavorable spin on it. Well, and that's something that John Horgan basically said himself when he was asked about this question. He says, if you're going to change the electoral system, you should ask the people about that. It's their system, not mine. But he also qualified saying, you know, we've talked about it. So I guess that makes it negotiable, but it's not something he wants to concede. You know, I actually agree with John Horgan on that first part, which kind of raises the question on, you know, why wasn't the rest of the NDP on board with that, you know, six months ago when we were talking about the Canadian federal election system? Because the NDP seems to be on have two different minds on this one between whether or not we're talking about uh, B.C. or Canada as a whole. And I don't really get the disconnect on why it's an almost red line to change the B.C. electoral system without a referendum, but the Canadian electoral system is fine just to push push through on the legislature. Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. It's either that the NDP is different parties at different levels, even though it's not formally, but the Alberta NDP is different than the BC NDP, even though they're brother-sister kind of relationship. The other way to look at it is the federal NDP is a third party and would benefit a lot more, versus the BC NDP would be at greater risk. And there are NDP partisans in BC who've campaigned hard against electoral reform, notably Bill Thieleman, who's like, no, this he must go to... Charge, he's basically. like, let's go to a referendum and I'm going to campaign my ass off for no, like he did in STV, to the embarrassment of a number of other NDP <laughs> supporters, myself included. But it does pose this question. I think the thing we came back to when we go back to our deep dive on electoral reform is it, it is a question of legitimacy, but I'm not. I'm still not sort of convinced referendum is the only way to build that public legitimacy. I could see it taken sort of out of the politicians' hands in a sort of citizens' assembly, like a binding citizens' assembly almost, or something where you say, all right, we're going to take partisanship out of this, but we're also not going to put it to a sort of referendum, which has its problematic elements of people voting for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with the question. We only have to look at the HST debate to see how bad referendums can go in terms of people just going, well, I want to say, fuck you, Christy Clark. I'm going to vote against the HST, whatever the question was. And I don't know yet how strong of a red line this is for the Greens. Obviously, they would prefer to side with the party that would just give them electoral form because it will greatly benefit them. And maybe the end result is a compromise where it's, we'll give you electoral reform, but we'll have a referendum on it the next year to say, did you like that thing we just did? Or should we just like never do that again? Don't talk about it. Throw it in the dustbin. Yeah, this one is really just hard to say. I can really see it going either way. And hell, I do even see the liberals coming out with an electoral reform. Robert Clark's already made some positive statements towards it and you know we could very well see you know bcstv version three uh coming up in the throne speech or maybe she could say she's for it put it to a committee have it study it for a year release an online survey with vox pop labs that tries to determine what kind of values british columbians have decide the whole thing was a waste of time and then Maybe sure poll numbers are high enough that she can burn the green support to force an election. If we want to be really cynical, yeah, who'd be stupid enough to do something like that? Moving on to segment two, citations needed. 
The Vancouver Park Board has voted to ban the keeping of cetaceans, which are whales, dolphins, and porpoises for on on um, West Coast. Yes, or <laughs> biologically inclined listeners. And this has kind of been an ongoing controversy for several years now, but in the latest round, they've once again gone ahead with a ban on them. And this one, because there isn't a Lumina municipal election, is probably going to go through. So yeah, the bylaw was passed on May 15th, but we're bringing it up now because there's been continued discussion, including a Vancouver Sun editorial that I'll get to in a minute. But basically... There's a number of animal rights activists who look at the whales and dolphins that the Vancouver Aquarium keeps in concrete tanks and goes, this seems really inhumane. We know a lot more about the welfare of marine mammals now than we did 30 years ago, 50 years ago when the Vancouver Aquarium was open. And we know they're a lot more human-like in the emotions and feelings they can have and keeping them in relatively small pens versus the ocean just doesn't mesh with sort of our contemporary animal welfare ethics. And the aquarium, for its part, I think has mostly gotten this. They haven't actually sort of fished wild whales out of the ocean and put them in captivity since 1996. They've mostly stuck with whales that have been deemed non-releasable, and that's by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans of the federal government. So they don't really have a choice. It's either send them to a worse aquarium or euthanize them because the government has deemed that they either have lived in captivity for too long, they have uh, fins with disabilities, I guess, dolphins with disabilities, dolphin first language. Part of this is around the Vancouver Aquarium's Marine Mammal Rescue Center, which is basically where they have scientists and veterinarians who go up and down the coast and respond to calls when a seal gets caught in a net or something. Get shot, like happened uh, a couple of weeks ago right yeah. here. And, or a whale gets beached. And for the most part, they try to get that animal back in the water and back in the ocean as fast as they can and as healthy as they can. And I think that happens for the vast majority of the animals they come across. The problem is every once in a while, they'll find an animal that the government deems non-releasable, like happened a couple years ago with a false killer whale name, that they named Chester. So that whale was way out of its habitat and too young, and they couldn't find its mother, so they basically had to bring it into captivity. So there's been this tension between the animal rights side and the aquarium saying we need to be able to keep animals in captivity because if we have a whale like Chester, we can't just like put him in a rescue center in the middle of nowhere it's not big enough. We can't afford it because no one will pay it. So we'll put him, quote unquote, on display. But if you haven't been to the Vancouver Aquarium, it's not SeaWorld. It's trying not to show off these animals. The shows they do are around sort of educational, as animal husbandry, feeding it, training it a bit more. They have three cetaceans in there right now. They have Chester, the false killer whale, and two other dolphins. They used to have two belugas in their tank. But in November last year, they both died from some unidentified toxin. There was some rumor this might have been a, related to a break-in, but I don't think the aquariums ever claimed that, so I won't try to speculate on that. And then we get to this Parks Board vote where they say, all right, no more cetaceans in captivity, 
with the sort of exception that the three that are in there can sort of live out their natural, unnatural lives, whatever. They can live out their existence. The problem is Vancouver Aquarium also owns five other belugas that are in aquariums around the States and around the world, sort of not in breeding programs, but in sort of shows and in other places. And they were actually hoping to bring a few back as they expand their cetacean exhibit and their Arctic, Canadian Arctic exhibit. That all has to be canceled now, this like multi-million dollar expansion plan. And so the aquarium is kind of in their way really pissed off and is now looking at can they sue the parks board because there's a question of jurisdictional issues and other things. So the Vancouver Sun editorial board this week basically just came out and said, fuck it, it's time to get rid of the elected park board. They said explicitly that it serves no useful purpose today, and all it does is allow the city council to avoid taking responsibility. And this editorial, which was unsigned, meaning the whole Vancouver Sun editorial team pretty much agrees, uh, says it seems clear that politics and ideology trump science, compassion, and common sense in the parks board aquarium anti-aquarium vote. Unless the Parks Board reconsiders its decision and repeals the bylaw just passed, it'll be up to the courts to reverse it. When the results of the vote were announced this week, supporters of the ban declared that cetaceans had won. What cetaceans won is the right to suffer and die, which is about the darkest end to a editorial <laughs> I've read in a little while. But it kind of goes to point out that under this bylaw, if the aquarium's rescue program comes across another whale like Chester, it will have to euthanize them. And there are animal activists who say, good because better dead than in a cage. And I myself have advocated for legalized assisted dying for humans in Canada. But the key difference I think there is the choice. And we're allowing humans who want to die to die. And we haven't yet learned how to talk whale to ask them. So that's my overview. I know you haven't read up as much on this or followed it as closely, but feel free to jump in with random thoughts. And remember that Whatever we say is going to piss off a bunch of people on Twitter. <laughs> I think the most interesting part of the Vancouver Sun editorial was kind of calling for the end of the elected parks board. And, well, in some ways, that's a pretty bad re overreaction to a vote not going the way the Vancouver Sun likes it. They do have some interesting points that it's the only park board that's elected in North America. And not only that, like, it's kind of so low profile, nobody really knows who's on it. Like, you know, I can barely name the city councillors in Vancouver. I have no idea without going and actually looking it up who's on the parks board. But that's the, the same argument that led in part to Brexit because no one in the UK knew who their members of the European Parliament were. But we didn't pretend that the European Parliament didn't do anything important, or at least I like to think they didn't because I spoke to a few MEPs in my time. But I think not knowing who they are isn't the same as we should get rid of them. Now, there's a very big difference, obviously, between a European Parliament and a Parks Board. But I, I think there's still a, a solid argument in, I think, both cases that the institutional structure has led to the situation where people are generally not well-informed or significantly less well-informed about what these specific institutions and the people who represent them on there do, and that there may be some benefits to reforming it. Now, we don't need to do a full Brexit for that to happen, but 
there is some interesting ideas raised in, in the uh, Sun editorial that, you know, maybe having that kind of responsibility and kind of the butt stopping with happening at City Hall rather than the Parks Board and being the sort of thing that if you have an issue with how that's being run, you know, take up the City Councilor, not the uh, Parks Board. Yeah, Vancouver municipal politics is very weird. I, in theory, really like the idea of greater democracy, of having a group that's dedicated to overseeing the parks, that's democratically elected, that represents people. And yet I'm not sure how well they're doing that. It is the only elected parks board in North America. And that sort of falls back to 1888 when the city of Vancouver was gifted Stanley Park, but sort of Maybe the politicians at the time weren't trusted with it, so they said, let's get different politicians to look after it. One of the problems with Vancouver politics is it's almost too partisan. Like, we have municipal political parties in Metro Van, which fall somewhat along the provincial lines, except they have different names. So we have the NPA, who are basically the liberals. We have Vision, that's sort of the centrist side of the NDP to the majority of it, and then Cope which is the far left side of the NDP. But somehow they sort of all came together, except one person, to agree on the cetacean ban. And it's that sort of blind partisanship that can almost sometimes hamper it. Although I could see the counter-argument to that being you have cities like Calgary where they don't have political parties, but they still have had multiple debates over water fluoridation, including I think a couple of years ago when they voted to take fluoride out of the water, despite the protests of the entire scientific and dental establishment of the city of Calgary going, no, don't do that. You will cause cavities. And studies have proven they have caused cavities since. So I don't know how to fix municipal politics. I like the idea of democracy, but sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, this might be one of those sorts of situations where having such a, so many like little bits of democracy almost moving a little too close to direct democracy it isn't but when it's such a narrowly tailored thing the people actually were going to kind of show up and really kind of put their thumb on the scale of this are going to be the interest groups and and the kind of more smaller and niche that elected body's scope is you're probably going to get that more and more and it kind of leads to the point like the average public isn't quite as engaged the more narrowly focused it is well that's a good point because the aquarium itself had released its own polling that has shown the majority of vancouverites people who live in the city of vancouver support basically what the aquarium's doing the idea that non-releasable cetaceans could be kept on display in the vancouver aquarium as it is right now people don't want you know, whales taken out of the wild and put in there for entertainment value, but they like the educational research aspects of the aquarium. But that doesn't drive votes. So maybe all that needs to happen is we just need to better exploit the system. There needs to be a pro-Vancouver aquarium municipal party that only runs for parks board seats, (laughs) and they do it. I know the aquarium is a charity, so they can't endorse or oppose political parties even at the municipal level, I guess even at the parks board level probably, but it could be a sort of offshoot, a political action arm, as you would. But I think this is far from the last we'll hear of this issue. This has been sort of an ongoing debate at the Vancouver Parks Board, like you said, since at least 2012. 
and like an active one since then. It's definitely been on be- since before that with different motions, possible referendums, elections interrupting them. A previous parts board had passed a bylaw banning uh, cetaceans in captivity here, and then that got overturned following an immediate election, basically, right afterwards, where the NPA, which is a really dumb name for a party, but which is the Nonpartisan Association Party, which is just a terrible idea for a name, but that's a... Branding uh, issue. That's a whole other tangent of mine. It got overturned, and now they're kind of back here again. And we'll, you know, it's one of those ongoing things that we're just going to have to see how it shakes out. Let's close off a shorter episode with our quick takes. First up, the big news coming up this weekend is that the Conservative Party leadership race will finally be over. Saturday evening, we're expecting the results to be announced, barring any ridiculously unforeseen circumstances. It's probably going to take more than one ballot unless Bernier has magically locked it all up. But do you have any sort of predictions for first ballot? Uh, first ballot, yeah, Bernier's the clear favorite on that one. It's probably the clear favorite to win. It's really hard to kind of predict how it's going to shake out just because of the whole riding weight system. Generally, it's bet Bernier's going to probably do pretty well in Ontario, parts of Quebec, and kind of... Alberta and the urban areas of the country, I think, is going to do reasonably well in. And that, that should put him in a pretty good position first ballot. Chon's probably going to do pretty well in the urban areas and the suburbs, and that will probably boost him up higher than the kind of raw poll numbers would suggest. Other than that, it's really kind of hard to see. And I think the big question is going to be, is Bernier going to be able to rack up those second choices fast enough to overcome kind of a move towards a consensus middle ground candidate like O'Toole or Shear. Yeah, I think if Bernier can top 40% on the first ballot, he's got it in the bag. Then it's just a matter of picking up here and there. If he's in the low 30s, things get to be a lot harder. And then there's that sort of 35 to 40 range where anything could happen. I think Shear's probably got the best second chance as much as O'Toole is a bit more moderate. I think Shear can pick up the sort of Lemieux and Tross supporters who've been surprisingly vocal in this. He can probably also even pick up a few of the leech and he's basically just branded himself as Harper with a smile. So the people who are still in the Conservative Party who have come back weren't ups- I don't think they were the people who were strongly upset at Harper in the last election. Most of them just went to the Liberals for now. So I see Shear as having the advantage there. The pollcast was talking about this today, and they basically were trying to figure out, well, they all had plans to look at the map and try and play the points, just didn't talk about it publicly. But who actually turned that out the best remains to be seen. I think Bernier's strength in Quebec and Alberta gives them the obvious advantage, but was anyone else sort of playing Eastern Canada when others weren't? Well, Lisa Rachel stopped talking about how she was from Cape Breton. It was one of her three talking points. I have heard Sean's done better than expected in that region. And that kind of region is always that kind of red Tory, not particularly, you know, reform party minded. So I could see kind of Chong, Rate, and O'Toole doing pretty well in Atlantic Canada. But nobody did huge campaigning out there. Although some of the candidates did make trips out there. But yeah, I think Atlantic Canada remains to be seen on how that's going to go. But my 
impression is expected to go towards some of the more moderate candidates. The other sort of leadership race news this week was Probit, which is a division of Ecos, released on social media, at least it's Twitter and Facebook, the poll of who New Democrats are supporting for leader. Now, they gave a few methodology bits, tidbits in their Facebook posts, but didn't really, but haven't gotten around to releasing the full sort of write-up yet. They've sort of been teasing it and suggesting it will come out, but we'll have to wait and see when that comes out in the next week. But basically, they asked 891 NDP supporters, that is, people who said they would vote for the NDP, and they asked them between April 25th and May 17th. And right now, when you pull out the don't knows undecideds, which they don't actually say how many people that is, which would be helpful because it's usually a large number at this point when no one knows who these candidates are. But Charlie Angus is first at 31%. But what was potentially most interesting is Nikki Ashton's just behind at 24%. And I say just behind because when you probably have a big undecided they're actually probably pretty close in the overall numbers. Peter Julian, our BC candidate, is at 14%. Guy Caron's at 11%. Jagmeet Singh, who announced his campaign sort of halfway through the field dates, is at 11%. So he might have actually gotten more votes at the sort of second half of the poll. And this might not actually represent his popularity very well. And Pat Stogren, who is officially in the race as of today and will be at the debate on Sunday, got 3%. And then a bunch of other people were written in, including Sid Ryan, Nathan Cullen, Tom Mulcair, people still want him, 1%, and Alexandra Bolaris all got about 1% in the write-ins. This is our sort of second bit of data to look at since the main contenders of the race have entered. We had sort of first quarter fundraising data a few weeks ago that suggested a sort of very similar layout with Ashton doing surprisingly well. I think we were thinking she'd be a sort of also ran again this round because of her sort of radical eco-feminist hashtag activism campaign. But now it's looking more to me like maybe she's using what she learned in the first race, building up from there and sort of coalescing the like far left of the NDP. She actually got an endorsement from Sid Ryan, who is the radical labor leader. And she's starting to rack up some of those, you know, like communist newspaper endorsements is like, she's our candidate to bring the revolution. <laughs> and apparently that might be 24% of NDP supporters. Yeah, I, I can see there'd be a segment of the NDP base that would like her. Um... I can't see the rest of the voting populace being nearly as thrilled about that. And if she does win, I'm wondering how much that's going to be one of those situations where the party pits a leader that appeals to the party and maybe not to the other people who vote and who are needed to win elections. So I could potentially see that being a situation. And we've, uh, we've certainly seen that in other cases in Canadian politics. And I have a suspicion Bernier might turn out to be that same sort of uh, leader. Well, along that line, we're seeing right now in the UK election, Jeremy Corbyn actually really start to close the gap, despite continuing to push a pretty left-wing for even Labour Party 
standards. You know, he's talking about nationalizing railways and power plants and things. He's he's talking about taxing private schools to fund free school meals at public schools. Like he wants to redistribute the wealth, and we'll have to see how the Manchester attacks sort of play out. And his sort of follow up speech apparently is going to be along the lines of all the wars the UK has been in caused this, which is going to stir up some controversy, but Corbyn's not afraid of controversy or else he wouldn't be where he is. And I can see some of the anti-establishment sentiments that have kind of been part of the fallout from the Iraq war, kind of maybe boosting that up a bit, but it will definitely be controversial to say the least. And yeah, there there definitely seems to be a bit of a um, more radical friendly zeitgeist right around now. We'll have to see how long that lasts. There's, you know, some signs it may be subsiding somewhat. A little hard to read the tea leaves in this one, but, you know, some of where Europe seems to be going is kind of taking the edge off of the kind of more radical anti-establishment sentiments that seem to be really big like a year ago. The caveat for this poll is sort of like the caveats for any leadership race poll in that it's really hard to actually find political party members. I think Probit answered one question saying it's like finding a needle on a haystack. Like even finding NDP supporters is a little bit hard right now. They're not doing so well in the polls. So whether this translates to what the actual membership is thinking, we don't know. It's not as hard to poll the NDP race as it was to poll the conservatives because there's not a weird weighting system. It's just basically one member, one vote. The other thing that I'll say is when I was looking at the Facebook page of this result, I noticed a familiar name in the conference. Ibrahim Bruno Al-Kahuri, who we mentioned last week, is sort of the also trying to run in the race. He wasn't listed in the candidates asked about. And so he responded with a nice short and sweet comment yesterday saying, this chart is misleading. Not even a period, just that. Unfortunately, Probit didn't answer Bruno's challenge. But I think Bruno's been sort of miffed about the lack of coverage. So I will do my part to keep talking about Bruno and maybe he can sort of get in the debate and challenge Pat Stogren, who I also have to say, I'm kind of disappointed because he launched a new Twitter account for his NDP leadership campaign, Pat Stogren NDP, and he doesn't refer to himself as Piat anymore. And he might not talk about the rebel gorilla. So at least my two jobs are going to be to keep Bruno and the rebel gorilla alive. Speaking of NDP polling, we've got a new poll out of Saskatchewan, which actually has the NDP ahead by nine points, 49 to the Saskatchewan's 40. Now, this is fairly early in the current mandate, and it's that point of the cycle where, you know, the unpopular decisions get made and then the ruling party kind of tries to claw back out from that unpopularity. And we just had an election there Last year, next one isn't going to be till 2020, so I wouldn't read too much into it. But, you know, it's not looking good for um, Brad Wall at the moment. The big thing for me here is that Brad Wall has consistently been the most popular premier in Canada, like sweeping majorities. Like it's been a while since the NDP has been healthy in Saskatchewan. They've done a number of elections where they were looking at 20, 30 percent. And so for them to be up at 49% suggests a lot of frustration and anger. And I think that all obviously falls at the last budget Brad Wall dropped, 
which was the sort of austerity because resource prices had dropped. So this is the budget where he cut libraries and buses and literally anything else, while still also trying to keep taxes low. And that kind of made a lot of people go, someone should be paying their share. And so you have the NDP right now able to just sort of capitalize on that and go, let's tax the rich and keep your library open because we're not evil. And Bradwall sort of came out and admitted this. He's like, yeah, we knew it wouldn't be a popular budget and we expected it to, we expected the polls to kind of swing. I don't think you'd usually want to do a policy that swung the dial nine points to the other side, <laughs> even if it was tied before. And I don't think it was. So he may have sort of underestimated how unpopular this action would have been. He's got a lot of time and he's a skilled, experienced politician. So undoubtedly he can try to ramp that back. But the other question might just be, will the knives come out in the Saskatchewan party? Because they have a bit of time and maybe he's been around a while. Maybe just throw a new face in front of them and say, yeah, we know we, we know we screwed up with that budget. Maybe it's time for a new leader in a different way. But it seems early for that because he's still yeah. popular. Or, yeah, if the poll numbers are like this a year from now, maybe. But right now, it's just far enough away from the legend. And there's signs, oils on the uh, uptick. Uh, and, you know, it could be that two years from now, well, we're probably not going to see triple-digit prices for oil. You know, it could be 70 maybe $80. And that's enough to get the juices flowing a bit in the Saskatchewan economy. You know, there might be a point of PST or HST, whichever they use in Saskatchewan, Ray, or, you know, a small little tweet to kind of bring in a little revenue, but not really being a big, we're going to raise your taxes moment in the Nets budget and kind of undo some of the damage in this one. It's not a great position to be in, but it's not the sort of fatal position. You know, if he had Kathleen's wins approval rating, it might be time to panic, but 40% is healthy-ish for a party in this situation after having just put out an unpopular budget early in its mandate. It's the sort of thing that is recoverable from, and yeah, we've seen time and time again a fairly unpopular incumbent managing to get re-elected. You know, the unpopular Ontario Liberals and BC Liberals keep managing to win elections despite not being particularly well-liked. So I can see this sort of thing just not really mattering that much in a year or two from now. Yeah, Saskatchewan doesn't really have any third parties to pick up any extra votes. There is a Saskatchewan Liberal Party, but I think they're sort of like the BC Conservatives. And then I think there's even another minor party, and both of them are sort of pulling at the 2 to 3%. That's where the last few percentage points are going. But I guess my dreams of a orange half of Canada in the West aren't likely because if oil rises to keep Rachel Notley in power, basically inflate the Alberta economy a bit, it will sort of also benefit Brad Wall and keep him in power. And the sort of chance of the NDP pulling through here still isn't determined yet. And if they're able to sort of hold on till 2020, a lot of things have to go right for the NDP to sort of take half of the country. And based on the NDP's history, I'm not that optimistic. <laughs> Well, next up, we have sort of a trio of stories involving the federal liberals spending lots of money. I don't feel the need to just harp on the liberals for spending money, but some of these are a bit more egregious than others. First up, the Phoenix pay system 
continues to just sort of be a better way to just throw money at than for employees to get money out of. This is sort of the system the government of Canada brought in a few years ago. I think it was actually under the Harper government, but the Liberals have well inherited this mess and have clearly not fixed it yet, so it's now their problem. This is the system the government is basically using to pay its staff, anyone at all the levels of the federal government. And this has been so frustrating that there have been countless reports of employees not getting paid, people getting paid late, people getting paid the wrong amount. And this is like, as an employer, you have one basic job as a federal as the federal government. The story this week is that the government is going to throw another $142 million at this pay system over two years, which is basically more than it cost in the first place. This hasn't quite reached the state of biggest Canadian government IT boondoggle, which goes to the long gun registry at cost overrun of $1,998,000,000, thrown from a projected billion to a $2 billion price tag. So this hasn't hit that level yet, but it's still a worry inside when you spend more money fixing a system than you do actually buying it in the first place. And along the same lines... The Liberals are now spending $30 million to basically keep the F-35s as an option to purchase this sort of a contract deal, I guess, they've had to make to extend the option to buy them. Without this money, we could still buy the planes at a later date, but we'd get less of a discount and Canadian firms would not be eligible for some of the contracts associated with the project. But, you know, this is... $30 million on top of the $373 million Canada has spent on the program since 97. And this is on the option to buy F-35s that the Liberals have said they're not going to do. Well, they sort of want that back to just an open competition rather than ruling out entirely. But they really need to just kind of shit or get off the trillion dollar pot at this point because... Everyone more or less knows we're eventually going to be buying these planes anyway. Like, they're the only fifth generation uh, fighter that any of our allies are making. We're not going to be building our own one in Canada, and you know, an Aero 2.0. And the only other planes of comparable capabilities are Russian or Chinese, and that's a complete non-starter. So, like, we're eventually going to be going with this anyway, you know. Hold the open competition, evaluate the you know options and whatever, but like 98% chance it's going to end up with the F-35 anyway, so they should just actually start going on this, because we've been talking about this for pretty close to a decade, or longer now, and it's just getting to the point where, you know, something needs to be done on this and actually start buying the planes. The U.S. has taken their first deliveries of it and start their first operational squadrons up and running. You know, it's time to actually make a decision on this one. Well, and finally, the last big budget item announced this week. I guess this was in the budget, but spelled out their plan for innovation superclusters. And this is uh, Minister Navdeep Baines making the announcement this week that there'd be $950 million for up to five of these superclusters. And they're looking to essentially partner with businesses who want to launch these things and they'll do a dollar for dollar matching with the idea of creating like a non-profit area where these 
businesses, universities, whatever, can work with the government to launch advanced manufacturing or agri-food or clean resources or clean technology or digital technology or health biosciences or just infrastructure and transportation. So the money is sort of dangled out there now. And the question is, will industry take the bait? Probably. I mean, it's that's a decent chunk of change. It's going to be a question of what are all the strings that are attached to it. But, you know, I, I think we'll see at least some people coming to the table on this, assuming that it, the requirements aren't too onerous. I think the real question is, is this actually going to help at all? Or is this going to be nearly a billion dollars of corporate welfare without actually getting much out of it? I think if things work out perfectly for the liberals and they get five high-tech campuses across Canada, what we'll be able to look back in a few years and say is the Liberals just dumped a billion dollar into liberal writings because where these are going will be sort of Burnaby and sort of metro-y suburban Vancouver, Toronto for sure, Montreal, places where the Liberals sort of won their majority essentially, where they got enough seats, except Atlantic Canada. They probably won't get anything like Ever. Yeah, they might get the agri-food. Yeah, actually, agri-food's probably going to the prairies. Yeah. Oh, they might get a uh, potato agri-food, uh, one in PEI. So I'd be sort of watching out for that, and that might be something that the conservatives pick up as an attack line. Now, it doesn't make sense to build a innovation supercluster in a small-town Saskatchewan, but it will come off as looking like liberals throwing money into cities when it's you know, rural Canada that struggles a bit more sometimes. And will they be able to balance that messaging? Yes. Yeah, it's going to be a hard uh, needle to thread, although it's still a better use of money than a gazebo. And finally, the Tories are criticizing foreign money in our last election and calling for reforms on political fundraising in, and political donations to third parties in Canada. Specifically, they've highlighted... $700,000 that the U.S. Tides Foundation had donated to eight different uh, Canadian third-party organizations in the 2015 election. So Tides is a U.S. progressive-based, essentially super PAC. It just sort of throws money at lefty causes, environmentalism, LGBT rights, that sort of thing. It put a bit of that money to groups like Greenpeace, probably lead now and a few others who registered as third party spenders in the federal election. What sort of triggered a bit of the news this week was Eve Cote, the commissioner for Canada elections announced that there were 105 complaints related to third party activities in 2015, which was up from 12 in 2011. A big part of this might be that there are just a lot more parties registering because the idea that third parties have to actually register in elections is fairly new, and a lot of NGOs haven't realized it, and so they're just getting a bit smarter. And as soon as they're registered, you can complain about them, and that's what the Conservatives are doing. The questions around should foreign money be able to go to nonprofits to campaign during elections is complicated, because I don't want the Fraser Institute taking a bunch of Koch brothers' money to you know, tell us we need to get rid of all taxes. But and at the same time... We also saw it in the BC election, too, where there was a lot of criticisms towards uh, money flowing into the Liberals. 
Well, and, and liberal affiliated groups. But on the other hand, you don't want to overly restrict third party groups from being able to act or speak or talk. One of the problems with BC's election is if a nonprofit wanted to say anything about the election, they would have to register with the government. Now, that was sort of a free, easy to do thing, but it's like, why should I have to be on a list if I just want to mention that this charity has a concern about education and would just like to see the parties talk more about education? It's that sort of stifling nature of it. And frustratingly, the courts upheld that restriction. And now the conservatives are talking about that plus more almost at the federal level where there would be a lot more scrutiny of what money goes into nonprofits, what they're using it for. And this sort of harkens back to the almost the political audits that the conservatives were doing through Canada Revenue Agency. And this is why some of the charities who are subject to those audits, like West Coast Environmental Law and Greenpeace, are calling it, you know, a poorly informed witch hunt designed to undermine their work. And I've talked to them, like these audits did, you know, put them in tears at the amount of like stress and frustration it was. I'm sure there's ways we can improve the rules. I don't know that I trust the conservatives to bring forward ones that look out for the interests of civil society, but we'll have to see. The election commissioner is actually asking for updated rules as well because she wants to sort of deal with these complaints before we run into our next election. But right now, the federal government is looking at overhauling charities legislation through the Income Tax Act and political activities. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays into that sort of conversation that's ongoing. Yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable to kind of limit donations that are used for political activities to just to Canadians, especially in surrounding an election. And, you know, this seems like a fairly reasonable request on the Conservatives' parts to update the rules on it, especially kind of where we are now, where the states around foreign political interference in elections has become a much more tense and relevant topic these days. And... I can definitely see a pretty solid rationale for it, even without that. But especially with this sort of thing where, you know, you know, you really don't want Russia, for example, channeling some backdoor money through, you know, one of the oligarchs into some advocacy group here or, you know, funding a rebel media spinoff or something like that. Because, you know, rebel media is a media advocacy group, I believe is what they call themselves now, not a natural news site so like there's a pretty solid case i think to update this and i think a little bit was probably motivated by the fact that the conservatives lost on this and that's why they bring up although i doubt seven hundred thousand dollars to the west coast environmental law and other similar groups really changed the election that much like they were going to lose regardless but even lead now's strategic voting campaign that they claimed to work by most you know, independent analyses was horribly ineffective. Like we talked with Brian about this a few weeks ago. They missed as many campaign calls as they got. The bigger issue, like I get the rationales and all those arguments. The bigger issue is just like the pragmatic day-to-day running a nonprofit. People complain a lot about charities spending their time on or time and resources on overhead and admin. And if you have to spend time figuring out which dollar came from where and filling out more bullshit forms, that's where 
advocacy chill effectively comes in and they go, well, we're just not going to do anything because then we don't have to fill out these forms or we forget to fill out these forms because we don't understand them because we're a bunch of volunteers. The lawn just basically needs to be smart and actually involve the voices of the people working in these and figuring that out because so far it's almost like a solution in search of a problem. We have the fears that this could happen. We don't have any evidence that it's really done anything bad, in which case we risk stifling a lot of good work in the efforts to hunt down the possible bad apple. Yeah, obviously you don't want to like really just overwhelm a organization with, you know, reams and reams of paperwork, but at the same time, like, you know, a normal political campaign, you know, there's a fair number of forms and the uh, campaign return that has to be submitted to elections candidates. It's a multi-page financial document with a bunch of information required, and it's by no means impossible to fill out. And that requires tracking donations, tracking spending, and everything. And I don't think it's unreasonable that if an organization wants to partake in an election, that you know they should meet the same similar levels of reporting requirements that the candidates who are also taking money for, have to meet. And that has been Plagos. Finally, it's the stories we mentioned in the show notes at Plagos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Plagos Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.